0: Sorry, I totally thought you guys would have one more song. I, I'm, I'm, I'm running down from upstairs, squeaky shoes. But we're not behind. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, if you didn't get to be with us last week, if you weren't here, man, we got to freeze together outside and see five people proclaim their faith in Jesus through baptism. The pictures are up if you want to go and watch that. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was so much fun. So, and like all five people unique in their background like where they came from where God started their journey and so man that was super fun to watch so let's take a minute and pray and then we'll jump into first John this morning God we love you thank you for time and your word thank you God that your word is trustworthy because you are uh, you choose to use that to reveal yourself to us to point us towards our identity in you um, and father just direct us how to live our lives Um, Thank you, God, for what we get to read, and Father, I pray we do it well this morning and don't add anything or take anything away and that you would speak through it. Thank you for loving us. Amen. So we're in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. Just, uh, this is kind of, John didn't know it, but he's kind of circling the plane. You know, he's circling the runway. He's getting close to landing. It's not a metaphor he would have used. He probably would have said, I'm getting close to putting the camel in the barn, something like that. But either way, he's there. Uh, The particular section that we're going to look at this morning if we looked at it void of the context of the book of 1 John, it would, be, it would seem like a hot mess, like I'll just point it out, just a, like, just a few verses, and it would seem like it's five distinctly different ideas if we looked at it on its own. But again, we talk about context being everything when it comes to interpreting Scripture, and this morning there's, there's no difference than, than normal, but the context here is a little bit broader. The context here is going to be the book of 1 John is the context. And so last week, we, we went back to one of John's favorite themes, talking about loving one another. It's one of those super big, he talks about it a lot. He was with Jesus when Jesus said, look, what I've done for you, I want you to go and do. I want you to love one another, but not just love one another, love one another the way that I've loved you, a new commandment. So that's one of his themes. Another theme that John takes a big interest in and God's inspired him to put in this particular letter is like the confidence that we can have in our salvation. We see that in the form of if-then statements. We see that in the form of of this this Greek word, hoti, or that. But by this, we can know that, or these things. And so we see several of those statements throughout the book of 1 John. I like to think of them as indicators. Like, I don't know if anybody fly fishes, but I'm a fly fisherman. And so we get to use these things that are not corks or bobbers, because that's what people use when they, they live bait fish for catfish. But fly fishermen, we use something that's more expensive and far more delicate called an indicator. But basically, as it floats down the stream and it twitches or goes under, it's telling us that something underneath is happening, and we need to pay attention. It's an indicator. Anyway, sorry, that's a, that's a rabbit, and I just chased it. But, you know, if anybody would like to go fishing sometime, be sure to take me. We'll go. Um, so there's, there's all of these indicators so that we can have confidence in our salvation. But also the other theme is, like, be on the lookout. Like, he warns his people that there's this spirit of the Antichrist that is here, uh, the capital A, Antichrist, but also the lowercase a, Antichrist, like these people who are opposed to Jesus, like we talk about, like it doesn't have to be something super complicated, it could be like people that don't use turn signals when they change lanes, they're anti-turn signal. These people were Antichrist, and he gives us some ways that we can recognize them, ways that we can know them. Those are his three favorite themes. That's the context of what we're looking at in the book of 1 John. And in this particular section of the letter today, that's, that's our context, like those are the things that, that are going on. And so they're not five disconnected ideas. They're five very connected ideas to what John has been doing. And again, he's kind of getting the camel ready for the barn. And so he's beginning to, to bring things in. And so what John does frequently is uh, he adds to or he builds upon things that he's already brought up. Like we talked about, John doesn't write like Paul. He, he kind of meanders around a little bit. He'll hit on something. He'll leave it. He'll come back to it. And repeatedly, like building several different structures as he's going through So today we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to finish out chapter 4, um, and so we'll just have a few more weeks after this. So chapter 4, verse 13, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll, we'll go back through and talk. And he starts with one of those familiar phrases. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. By this is love perfected or completed with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So within this, again, like if we just read this, and we, we jumped here without looking at the rest of the book of First John, we would, we'd read it and be like, man, these are... These are four to six very disconnected ideas. But again, keep the themes in mind that John's been covering. You know, keep the theme in mind that uh, we can have confidence in our salvation. He, he gives these statements in the form of if-thens frequently, like if this, then this You know, kind of an idea. You know, if you have love, then, then there's this. Thing. And he p- puts out several of them. None of them are mutually exclusive. They, we have to look at them all. Um, and then also the, the warnings against the Antichrist and, and also the, the understanding that love and love for one another, what it looks like, it came from God. We didn't create it. Talked about a few of those last week. So that's the context, and we're going to talk about a little bit more how these are connected. But he starts out with one of those, those indicators or one of those proofs that we, have, we can have confidence in who we know that we are owned by God. Starting in verse 13, he says, By this, we know that we abide in him or we live in him. Our lives are tied up in him and his and ours or he and us because he has given us his spirit. Now, he mentioned this the previous chapter, the end of chapter 3, and he just kind of dropped it and moved on. So now he's building upon that again, but just talking about this idea, like this spirit that God has given us, his spirit, which John wrote about in his experience with Jesus in the book of John in chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, which we'll toss up in just a second, like he told us he was going to send him after he left. Um, Go ahead and throw that verse up there for me. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, notice the capital H, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says, when I leave, in the preceding text before this, he said, you're going to do greater things than I will after I leave, and unless he left, the Spirit couldn't come. And later throughout the New Testament, we actually see that this idea that the Spirit was sent as a seal of of our salvation or proof of our salvation. And here John's mentioning it again. He's like, this is one way in which you can know, you can be assured that your life is tied up in God and God's life is wrapped up in yours because the Spirit that is His has been placed in you. And this spirit that's placed in us, like I think me growing up in kind of the B.O.B.C., the the, the big old Baptist church, which I've said I need to stop saying, but that, that is, that's where I grew up. Nothing wrong with it, not derogatory, but that's how I grew up. Like the only time we talked about the Holy Spirit was at baptism, right? Like we would, you know, there would be this beautiful baptistry behind the choir and, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, kabloosh. And that was the only time we would hear about it. And so for me, like growing up in that lineage and that tradition, like the Holy Spirit was a little bit freaky, like the Holy Spirit was a little scary, like the man behind the curtain that we didn't talk about. We acknowledged that he was there, but we would never place like criteria on or responsibility on or things like that. And I don't know if your baggage is like mine or your background's like mine, but that, that is mine. Uh, but, but putting ourselves in the fullness of Scripture and in the fullness of the promises of God, we understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit co-equal in power but yet distinct in functions, like the Holy Spirit's incredibly real. And in this place, God's telling us through the mouth of John that this Holy Spirit that's been placed in us is proof that we're God's. How else could God abide in us unless He actually abides in us? And that's through the very Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the agent that convicts me when I'm not following the path of Christ conviction of sin. The Spirit of God is the, the agent of regeneration in me and making me look more like Christ. The things that are changing in me, that is a result of God being in me through His Spirit. The things that are changing in you, sanctifying you, making you look more and more like Jesus, that's not solely of your effort. That's of the God of all creation living in you through His Spirit and Him bringing about change in you. That little voice inside of you that tells you don't do that it's contrary to what you know to be true, that's the Spirit of God. That voice inside of you that says, do this because you need to, this is who you are, that's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the, the agent of conviction, the agent of regeneration, God's very presence gets to come and dwell in us. And if we look at Ephesians now, we're even told that the temple has changed, but the purpose of the temple hasn't. But the temple's no longer built by hands, made of brick, stone, mortar, gold, all of those things. No, the, the temple is now here. In me, in us, in the we. Like this is the temple of the living God because his spirit rests in me, resides in me, rests in you, resides in you, works through you, empowers you, equips you, trains you, teaches you, does all those things. And that very spirit is the indicator or is one of the indicators that you are God's and that he's in you. So this by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Verse 14, 15, it says, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Here's kind of another one of these statements in verse 15, just in a slightly different order. But whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so now we're, we're seeing a little bit more of just uh, one more of these ideas. It's like, here's, here's more proof. Do you confess? And what do you confess? Do you confess that Uh, Exactly what we asked the people that we baptized last week. Uh, Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Like, that was the first question we asked. But, you know, we asked those a couple questions before people are baptized, and we've heard their story, we know their stories, but we ask, like, uh, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. And as a matter of fact, like if we go back up to testing the spirits at the beginning of chapter 4, remember one of those themes, be on the lookout, be on guard against the spirit of the Antichrist? One of those was like, uh, if someone is not, if they're coming to you preaching truth, they're coming to you telling you that this is authority, but yet they're unwilling to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came in flesh, don't listen. Don't listen. They've already removed themselves from the truth equation. It's one of the tests. And here as a byproduct of us being gods, being with him and him in us, this should be our confession, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus did come in flesh. Because we have to to acknowledge, like, this is Jesus. This is God with skin on. He came to die in our place. Otherwise, his death would have meant nothing. So he's giving us another indicator here. And, And also 14 through 16 is almost a cause to the effect that we're, or 13 through 15 is almost a cause to the effect that we're going to see in 16. Verse 16, it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. As a result of these first two things being the cause, the first is this, that God's Spirit has been placed in us. Now we know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. Because of these two things, and here's the effect in verse 16, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And that was one of the statements that we made last week. Like, I don't know the last time you thought of this. I don't know the last time that you heard it, but, but God loves you. God loves you. God loves not just the the y'all or the creation of people or humanity, but on an individual basis. God loves you. God loves me. And we can come to know this. We can come to believe this. We can come to understand this as a result of the fact that he's redeemed us. Apart from that, we we wouldn't. Apart from that, the, the fullness of this knowledge wouldn't rest in me. The fullness of the belief of that wouldn't rest in me unless I was abiding in God and him abiding in me. So now, we know this. We can know the very love of God. And then he repeats himself the same thing that he said several verses previous. God is love. And every time this love appears, like we, we've talked about this before in the New Testament, we have several different words for love that pop up. Um, we have the, the eros, which is kind of like that, that romantic butterfly husband wife kind of love. Hopefully, put it in that, that place. Um, then we have the, the, the phila or the philos, the, the brotherly love. We name Philadelphia after that. But then we have this agape kind of love. And every time love is mentioned in this text, it's talking about that agape love, that God driven, unconditional, unearned, unmerited love. The love that emanates from God, the love that continues through God, the love that is fueled from God, the love that is placed in us as a byproduct of being uh, united with God—that type of love. This is the only love that comes up here. He's not talking about brotherly love. He's not talking about that romantic love. He's no. He's, he's talking about this God-dwelling, God-centered, unconditional, unmerited, all grace-given love. And it says, "God is this," like God is that. That love, and this is the love that we've come to know. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then it tells us, like, you know, that abide word keeps popping up, and that literally means to walk in, to dwell in, to live in, to be immersed in, to be wrapped up in. He says that this love that we've come to know that God is, yeah, we abide in that, we live in that, we dwell in that. And I'll just, like, I'll just tell you, like apart from God, that's not possible. Like Once again, this, this idea of so, we have come to know and believe these things, like understand, like us abiding in that love, not possible without God. This is not man-made love. This is not man-driven love. This is not man-possible love. Because everything that we know is, is pluses and minuses in this life. Everything that we know is earn it or lose it kind of a thing, but God doesn't function like that. His economy, completely different. It's grace-driven versus coin-driven. It's just, it's different. And we couldn't understand, we couldn't abide in, we couldn't know this kind of love unless God had wrought a change in me and in you through the salvation that only he offers through Christ. Like, we wouldn't be able to do it. God's Spirit has been placed in you as proof of your salvation. Uh, not only that, but we have been able to confess uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of the world, I mean, Jesus is the Savior of the world, um, so that these things we've come to know and believe, we've come to understand the love of God, not just love, but like God's love. And now we get to live in it. We get to live in it. John, John loves talking about love. And I think it's so vital because, again, in the context of everything he's trying to do, like John's not confronting the people that he's writing to, probably in these seven surrounding churches. He's not confronting them with things that they're doing wrong. He's not saying, hey, you're not doing this well, so, so do this better. He's not saying that. But he is telling them, I want you to look, okay? I want you to look around you. There are people trying to deceive you. And maybe he's telling them this because this is not what they're demonstrating. This is not what they're showing. They're, they're offering a version of the truth. They're not offering Jesus as the Son of God. and Maybe they're not offering authentic agape type of love either. And maybe he's telling them, look, beware of counterfeits. Make sure you're able to recognize the real thing when you see it and be confident in what you have when someone offers you something different. But understand, like, this love that we've come to know, this love now we come to dwell in, and this love that we've come to see, it's proof that we are His. And it's not, like, like, I think the further that I get down this path of following Jesus, the more I realize the things that, that He equips us to do And this may seem like a dust statement, but the things that he equips us to do, there's no way I would have ever been able to do those on my own. Like, no chance. Like, I know I fall short of loving like this. Like, I I know I screw it up. But even the areas that I do have a modicum of success in, I know I couldn't have done those without Christ. And I I see that. Like, it's very evident to me. Like, my natural born state, I, I wouldn't have been capable of these things. To love like this, to dwell in this type of love, to to live a life that echoes that kind of love, I know it's not in me. And I I can tell you, I know it's not in you apart from Jesus. It's not. This type of, man, this type of unmerited, grace-based love that just comes from the sincerity of God Almighty, it wouldn't be in me apart from Jesus. And it wouldn't be in you. And so when we see the outcropping of it, when we see the outpouring of it, like we must see that it's proof of God at work in us, in us, through us, to us, for us, for the glory of God, all of those things, like we have to see that and come to that conclusion. So he offers that as another indicator. Then in verse 17, it's almost like, and while I'm talking about love... (laughs) By this is love perfected in us or completed in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. And it does, like it seems like a leap, like to be honest, like verse 17. I've read this so many times and I'm like, Elder John, like Grandfather John, where did that come from? But again, in the context of everything, these if-then statements, these, uh, these uh, by-this statements, these ideas of having confidence in our salvation, this is just one more place, and we're talking about this love as proof of who I know, proof of, of my salvation, and proof of who I abide in, who abides in me, and now I get to dwell in that. And it's maybe not so much about while I'm talking about love, but while I'm talking about confidence. While I'm talking about assurances that you can have. He goes to verse 17 and he says, By this is love perfected or completed in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So judgment's not one of the topics, really, of 1 John. And maybe, like last week, I said maybe you haven't heard in a while that God loves you, um, that he loves you personally, he loves you intimately, uh, he loves you endlessly, he loves us corporately. Maybe you, you also haven't heard on a completely different hand that there will be a judgment. John throws it out there. We're not going to spend a day teaching on judgment, but I do have a list of verses. Like if you're taking notes and you want to spend some time, you want to go look up some things, what judgment's going to look like. Did you guys generate that slide? Got it right there, yeah. If you want to write these down and go look at these, this will get you started. Um, you can just kind of go and look at what that judgment's going to be. You know, when Christ returns, judging those that know Jesus, those who do not, and what that's going to look like. You can, you can write those down and go take a peek at those. But this is what I'll say, judgment will come, and at that time, uh, Jesus will separate those who are united with him and those who are not, and that's the truth, and maybe you haven't heard that, and maybe that, that makes you have some turmoil. If you do, that's okay. We'd love to talk, but it is coming, and it's real, and one thing that John is saying right here, which... Uh, some, so many people don't read this before they read verse 18, so they take verse 18 way out of context. Uh, verse 17 is saying, hey, this love that we've just talked about, this agape love that God has displayed, uh, that we get to live in, that we get to dwell in, this love also reminds us that when judgment comes, we can have confidence because we won't be separated from God. If that love's in me, if that love is in you, placed by God himself, pointing us to love like he does as a result of our salvation and us being made new and in the likeness of Jesus, when judgment comes, we will not be separated from God. We can have confidence. This love is completed in us, perfected in us, and we can know. We can know. We can know that judgment's coming, but we will be judged by Jesus, not by me. I'll say that again. We will be judged by Christ and his works and not by mine. And that's the only way that we escape judgment. We only escape judgment if, we're, if our character and our life is based on the righteousness of Jesus. And that's, man, that's the gospel, right there. That's the gospel. Judgment's coming, we don't have to be afraid if we're gonna be held to the standard of Christ because his righteousness has been given to us. And then the last line of this, Because as he is, so so also are we in this world. Really strange. Just the syntax of that entire statement is really, really odd. Um, But basically, the best that I can come to understand, because there are a few lines in the book of John that make me scratch my head, so I I dug a little bit, the best that I could on this, and I I think the conclusion is this. Uh, As Jesus is currently in the Father's love, so are we also, except we're here on earth. As Jesus is in the Father's love currently, so are we also, but here on earth. Again, another huge piece of assurance. Jesus can't be separated from the love of God, neither can we. Confidence. Then in verse 18, this is the one that's often taken out of context. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love... I'm going to read it in a very cheesy tone. Let me just bear with me. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Sounds good, and people have applied it kind of, you know, very vaguely to a lot of things, like love, love's good, feels real nice, makes things good. Again, in context, this is talking about fear of judgment, like fear of being separated, fear of that punishment that comes uh, when judgment comes. But here, it's like if we have this love that God has placed in us, that God originated, that God designed, that God Planted in us so that we could live in it, so that we could know it, so that we could be assured of our salvation, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because this complete love that only comes from God, like it casts out their fear. Fear has to do with punishment. We're not going to endure that. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. All having to do with that. Again, judgment's coming. It's real. There's no way around it. But if that love of God has been placed in me, we don't have to be afraid. If we are afraid, if you are afraid, Maybe you don't know that love. And again, I I don't want people to doubt their salvation, but again, the same idea that John has, like I want people to be sure of it. And if you have fear about punishment, being separated from God for the rest of eternity because of the status of your life, man, I would love to have coffee with you this week. Um, My wife would love to have coffee with you. Any of our elders and their wives would love to have coffee. It doesn't have to be coffee. It can be tea. Tea's okay, you know, especially after two o'clock. We'd love just to sit down and chat. Like, if that fear is around you, if it's encompassing you, and you're like, man, at the end of my life, when I draw my last breath, I really don't know what the status of my eternity is going to be. Let's have a conversation. Let's just talk about it. Because I think John throws it out there for the same reason that, that we need to read it. For whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you know religion. Maybe you know some practices. Maybe you know some do's and don'ts, and therefore you're afraid. Man, let's have a conversation. Let's talk through that. Then, verse 19, John jumps back into a very familiar conversation and topic. And we've seen it over the past few chapters. We've, we've just seen it throughout the entire book. And we talked about this very idea last week. We love because he first loved us. One of the statements that we made last week is that we have to understand, like, we didn't invent love. It's not one of our creations. You know, that, not ours. We may be able to claim the will as a man-made invention, you know, that's pretty good. But love, we can't. We can't claim that. Not our idea. It would look very, very different if it was. Especially this life of love, because again, this is agape, okay? This is agape, and it's uh, we agape because he agaped us first. We love unconditionally because he loved us unconditionally first. Without merit, without any of those things. Like, we love because he loved first. And then he jumps into verse 21, 20, and it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, we've seen this very idea pop up several times. We've seen it jump up uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 3, 14 through 17, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Uh, We've seen it. Like, last week, we even talked about, like, you can't say that you love God and have hate or lack of love in your heart. These two things can't exist at the same time. And here, he's taking it uh, directly tied to the words of Jesus uh, in John chapter 14 of, uh, pardon me, not John chapter 14, but John chapter I didn't, I didn't put my reference down I'm going to lose it so it's going to be okay but either way when, when Jesus said like look uh, I give you a new commandment love one another as I've loved you like he's taking it right from there like we can't simultaneously say I love God and have hate for our brother it, it doesn't work it doesn't work repeated theme in the book of 1 John so you're like I've heard that before I know you've heard it before because John said it before and I know I've said it before but it just can't happen says, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot possibly love God, whom he has, who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so I almost look at these first few statements as like the, the ideas that we need to be aware of, the, the heart place that we need to be aware of, and then this last little section is like, how is it going to work itself out? What is it going to look like? What is it going to do? Because if we, if we have all these other things kind of down pat, or we think we do, we think we know what love looks like. We, we think we have the spirit dwelling in us because we make pretty good decisions. Um, and we think that we have all of these other things taken care of. We have confidence on what judgment's going to look like. But then we get to the very end and we're like, yeah, but I hate that guy. We miss something somewhere. Something big. And it's probably a relationship with Jesus. Again, not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. Same idea with John, though. I want you to be confident of it. And so if there's something pointing to an incongruency in your life then we need to take note, and we need to look at it. We need to examine it. We need to ask good questions. And so in this place, like, if you say you love God, you can't hate your brother. Because if you say that, then you're a liar. You're a liar. You probably do hate your brother, but you don't love God. That's the thing you're lying about, by the way, if you need to know. So I'll read all of this, and, like, again, like, if we read it by itself, we'd be like, "What? what in the world? Like, where do these things take place? But I do believe, like, I think he's tossing especially this last section out because this is how it's going to play out. But, but it's also a great indicator. Like, if we have love for God, we will have love for the one another's. It's like, it's going to be there. It's proof. And, and it's going to be not just phileo. It's not going to be brotherly love. No, no, it's not going to be that. No, it's going to be like agape kind of love. This is the only love that's mentioned here, like that kind of love. Like, we're going to have that. If we say we love God, then this has to be here too, have to be there. So, I think it's an indicator, but I think also it would be like a huge marker of those people that are coming in amongst the midst of the people uh, in these cities. And they're saying, I have truth for you. Let me share it. We're not going to talk about Jesus being the Son of God and coming in flesh. And I'm, you're not going to see me loving others very, very well, but I've got truth for you. I think, again, it's a great pointer that there are going to be people that are going to come into your life and they're going to offer a version of the truth to you. But if these things don't match up, we have to choose. This is not where I get my truth. This is not where I'm going to hear this from. You are not who I'm going to follow. Like early on in this book, like one of the cautions that we tossed out there, we have to be very cautious who we follow. We have to be very cautious who we follow. And this is a huge indicator because like to be honest, my vertical relationship with God, and we'll come back to this, my vertical relationship with God, um, the outside world, they're not going to see a lot of that. They're going to see some of it. Uh, like, we, we talk about Sundays are an expression of how we love God. Like, we gather together, we worship vocally, we listen attentively, we strive to apply the truths of Scripture to our life. The outside world's not going to see that. Why? Because they're the outside world, and they're most likely not going to be in here with us. Now, you may be a non-believer in here today, and if you are, I'm grateful that you're here. Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. He has a plan for you. There's hope that rests only in Him. And I would love to tell you everything that I possibly can about that as soon as possible. But the rest of the outside world, they're not going to see us expressing our love for God in this way. But the way we love one another, or the way that we don't, a lot of people see. A lot of people see. Your neighbors across the street see it, your coworker in the cubicle next door sees it. A lot of people see it. And I think that's one of the reasons John throws it out. At the very end, he's like, man, people are going to come peddling truth. They're going to peddle truth in the name of God. But if they're not doing this, something that you could obviously see, then you need to get your truth somewhere else. need to make sure we're careful who we follow. And kind of extended to that. Like I think John closes this little section out. And John didn't do chapters, but it is there is kind of a, a clear marker here of one topic to another. I think it's an understanding that that we have to admit this week the same thing that we admitted last week. Like, the world needs to see the way we love one another. Like, the world doesn't... They need to see the way that we love God, but there's not a lot of chance for the outside world to see that, but there's plenty of chance for the world to see the way we love one another. Plenty of chance. We don't have to put it on billboards. It should be just how we live. We abide in that. We walk in that. We dwell in that. And the most obvious outpourings of that are going to be the way that we take care of the one another. And the world should see it. So what do we do with the rest of this text? I think, I think the first part is, is very much a mental and a heart posture kind of thing for us. Like the, the first big chunks of this, when he, he talks about a couple of those by this statements, or, or Hoti ideas of, of know this so that this will occur, this kind of thing. Um, I think we need to echo that of know, believe, and have confidence. And hold on. Not in yourself, but in Jesus. Know, believe, and have confidence in Jesus. And you're like, well, yeah, of course. No, 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 seriously. Like he says, and so we know and we believe. It should lead to confidence in Jesus. It should lead to confidence in, in the fact that um, my salvation... My identity is secure in and through Jesus. My salvation, my identity, it's secure in and through Jesus. Not by any works of my own, not by any engineering of my own, not by any amazing understanding of my own, but by the work of Jesus. Uh, My identity and my salvation is secure in him and only him. Like all of these things, these little assurances that John gives, and I would love for you to replay the whole book of First John in your brain. All of these little if-then statements, all of these by-this statements, all of these things that John is giving because he wants them to have confidence in the fact that they've been bought with a price that they couldn't possibly pay, and it's through Jesus and Jesus only, and their life is secure in him. Like that same confidence. Like, we need to walk in that. We need to live in that. We need to, man, we need to get up every single morning and know that my life is secure in the perfect and beautiful, all-sufficient work of Jesus. Because that affects everything. It doesn't affect the swagger that you walk with into a job opportunity or anything like that. It doesn't affect, you know, how a single person asks another single person out. Not that. I'm talking about, like, eternal confidence. This confidence to know that at the end of all of this, The end of all of this, however God chooses to wrap it up, I'm okay. I'm okay. Whatever doubts creep into your life, whatever the world says that you need to take stock in, it does not matter. It doesn't matter. It's just Jesus. He's done it because we couldn't. And all of these indicators, all of these if-then statements, all of this by this stuff should grow our ability to know, believe, and have confidence in Jesus. For the now, our identity and our salvation, but also when that judgment comes, that he's going to separate those who know him, those who have followed him, and those who don't and have not. Like we can know. My identity and my salvation is secure, and when judgment comes, God's going to look at me and going to see the work of Jesus, not the work of man. Confidence. Live in that, abide in that, have that confidence. And the reason that I think that we have to do that and we have to live in that way, because I think the converse of that is that Satan would love to have us fear punishment that's not coming for us. Satan would love for us to live in fear of punishment that's not coming for us. Because you know what happens when when that occurs? We do nothing. Because fear paralyzes, like it makes us stand still. It makes us stop and second-guess everything. It doesn't exude confidence in Jesus. It doesn't allow us to walk forward in faith. No, it makes us try to earn it and try to fix it, even though it's already been given and it's already been fixed. So instead, we live in extreme confidence that my salvation, my identity, and my eternity is secure in Jesus, no matter what the adversary says. No matter what the world says, no matter what your metric says, Jesus is more. And then I think the second thing that we do, and John said it frequently, we're going to say it frequently. Uh, We even have it kind of in our mission statement of make disciples who love God, love one another, and love the city. But, man, we have to love one another sincerely, like honestly, intentionally, endlessly. And it's not the man-made stuff. Doesn't work, but like this God kind of love, this God kind of love that he gave us so that we could give, so that we could live in this agape idea, this grace-based love, not merit-based, not favor, not any of that, but just God-based love. We need to do that for the one another's. And we've talked about uh, horizontal love in scripture. It's either directed towards neighbors who do or, or may or may not know Christ or to the one another's. And that new commandment that Jesus gave, he was talking about those that sit around the same table in which God's at the center the one-anothers, the family of God. doesn't mean that we don't have love for others. Absolutely not. Scripture says that we must. We must love them to such a degree that we want the same good for them that God has grace to us. But the one-anothers, the people that we get to display love to most frequently, even according to Galatians chapter 6, uh, find every opportunity to do good, especially those within the household of faith. Like, we need to do that well, intentionally, endlessly, without it being earned. But just because we've got the same dad I mean, bottom line, like, we love one another because we're family. We have the same dad. We don't ask questions. We just do what we can, as we can, until we can. not Do what we can, as we can, until we can. not Intercession for uh, for sin, uh, intercession for need, uh, taking care of physical things, taking care of non-physical things, whatever it may be. If there is a need that pops up and we can address it, we address it. We don't ask questions. We don't ask for payback. We just do it. And again, Acts chapter 2, Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why? Not because they preached really, really pretty. Not because they had amazing singing voices or anything like that. No, because they loved each other conspicuously. They loved each other very, very well and the outside world saw it and they were like, man, I would love to have that. We need to love each other well. And I do think there's a little warning here. If you have hate in your heart, if you have hate in your heart, let's talk. It'll kill you. It will end you. It will lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Confess, repent, accept the healing work of Jesus. I hate to sound very cliché, but life's too short to hate. Like it's just it just is. Like it's it doesn't work and we can't love God and have that in our heart at the same time. There's not room for both. So if you can walk out of here and you can say it's not there, great. But if you look inward for just a minute and say there is, there's hate. There's desire for harm to come to someone. When Jesus when he was on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, "You've heard it said, no one should murder." absolutely. Yay, don't murder. He said, but if you look at someone with hate or the idea that you want harm to come to them, that's your desire for them. You've already murdered them in your heart. You're in sin. And so maybe it is. Maybe it's just in the life of a believer that this sin has crept in and you've allowed it more room than you should and you haven't dealt with it. Or maybe it's an indicator that you are not united with Christ. Either way, it needs to be dealt with. We need to talk about it or you need to talk to someone about it. Go to your community group leaders, talk to them first. If it's bigger than they can handle, kick it up the chain, or just or if you want to just skip them and come to one of the elders, man, we'd love to talk to you. But we need to deal with hate. Whether it's for an individual, whether it's for a group of people, whether it's for a political party, I don't care. Hate, regardless, wherever it's directed, it can't live in the life of someone who's following Jesus and said that, I love God. can't be there. If it is, we have a problem. And then just the last little mark of, again, not legalistic evaluation, but I think it's a worthwhile question. When those around us who do not know Jesus look at our lives, do they see us loving one another? When those around us who do not know Jesus see our lives, do they see us loving one another? This isn't the motivation for us loving one another. It's not the reason that we do it. Christ is the motivation, the love that he supplanted in me that I didn't earn. But it should be evident. It should be evident. Is it? Is it? If you can say it's not, I'm not telling you that, that you need to confess Jesus as Lord for the very first time because you haven't. I'm telling you that maybe you need to confess to Jesus, repent, of not loving the way that he's told us to and ask him, where do I start? Where do I start? Create in me a desire to love the family of God the way that you love the family of God and let me do it until I can't. Maybe that's your starting place. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us in, in such a way that it's obvious that we don't deserve it, that we can't earn it, that we can't explain it. Um, and God, thank you that that love is so palpable and so perceivable that it's proof that we're in you and you're in us. Thank you, God, for the promise and the, the placement of the Holy Spirit in those who are united with you through Christ and Christ alone by grace through faith. God, thank you that that's another proof. Thank you that the know and the belief so that uh, we may, may love as you've loved. Thank you, God, that that's further proof that we're united with you. Thank you, God, for our desire uh, to love one another the way that you've loved us is further proof that we're united with you. Thank you, God, that we can have confidence that if all of these things are true and we feel them, uh, that love that is in us, Father, it should tell us that we don't have to be afraid of what's coming. We don't have to be afraid of the judgment because we're going to be judged based on Christ and not based on ourselves. God, thank you. Thank you for Christ dying in our place and living a victorious life because we couldn't. God, my heart's desire for this family is just that we look like your son to this city. That we love like your son, we forgive like your son, we serve like your son. And Father, we we offer his hope as often as we can, so that every man, woman, and child may have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to your good news. Father, may your name be made great through the efforts of believers in this city. Through, through faith families called Origins, through faith families called Greenville Community Church, through faith families called Grace, through, through faith families of whatever their name, if they're adhering and honoring just Jesus as a way to know you, Father, I pray that their neighbors would hear and that your fame would grow and you would draw men and women to yourself. Thank you that we get to witness your glory. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.